Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Hello, I'm Jerry. And I'm Jo. Each month, one podcast will be dedicated to the human journey through the social work lens from pre-birth to the end of life. That does not sound ambitious at all, Jerry. It doesn't, does it? Um, no. Yes. So we'll come on to what we're going to be talking about, but I've got a few thank yous first, um, which are um, particular thanks to people on Twitter who've um, recently uh, retweeted us. So Shona Speakman, who's completely new to Twitter in Wigan, uh, Sammy, who's a student social worker in Somerset, Bev, David Orr in Edinburgh, Fran Fuller, Liz Howard in Social Work England, Nicola Thrower in Northamptonshire, Matthew Purves in Stockport, Charlotte Davis, Angie Bartoli, Edward, who's an NQSW, newly qualified social worker in Scotland, and Becky Salter, who's also a student. And also just wanted to say thank you to Dorley Michaeli, who's uh, who on Twitter made a suggestion about how we can make the podcast a bit more accessible because we were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, we can't do transcripts at the moment, but we are looking at doing an ebook, and she suggested maybe trying to put something to look I at. I want to must-dos that we've got to look at. <laughs> so yeah do let us know what you think it's really great to hear from you and thank you for sharing and you can visit our website on www.helpfulsocialwork.com and leave a comment or you can comment on itunes or on our facebook page helpful social work podcast sounds good now this is the third episode looking at the human journey through the social work lens and we're trying to think about how we grow and evolve and what this means for social workers who are alongside us on that journey and we've already looked at pre-birth and infancy so this month, it's childhood. Yeah, and what you'll notice during this podcast is that Jo talks a lot about social work because she knows about social work with children. And I talk about all kinds of other things because I don't know that much about social work with children, um, having not ever been in a in a children's services role. Um, so I'm going to start with definition, uh, which is the definition of a child is a person between birth and puberty or a person who's not attained maturity or the age of legal majority. It's also used kind of generally to define um, an infant, an unborn infant, a baby, someone who's childish or immature, um, someone who's the son or daughter or a descendant of someone or a a group. And also you can be a child of something. Um, So it can be something that affects you, um, particular time or place. So you can hear about child of the 60s, that kind of thing. So... It's a very general thing, isn't it? Roughly mm-hmm. from when you're born to when you're 18. Um, we're thinking particularly about younger childhood, aren't we? Because we're going to talk about adolescence. I think so. That's right. And I think I think that, you know, in social work terms, we do think about them as, as different periods. We would think about that infant to three. Then we think about the three to 11-year-old. So almost in an educational sense, we tend to think about them, you know, primary age children and then um, high school age children. So the adolescents. Um, and then the children who are at universities. So I think that um, we are definitely, we definitely break them up in, into those groups and we should be, we're really talking about primary age children, I think, in, yeah. in, in the podcast. Although, you know, you have highlighted here that um, actually the legal definition is someone below 18. Um, yeah, apart from occasionally. Um, so, for example, in Scotland... Uh, children's hearings and child protection orders define children as under 60. 
Okay. Um, I think that's still the case. Um, and also you pointed out that children leaving mm. care are now entitled to support until they're 25. Yeah, and and and, the, and I guess there's been research done just recently, um, starting to be published around the brain. I mean, we're learning more and more about the brain all the time, and um, you know this kind of growing awareness that our brain doesn't fully mature until we're around 25 years of age, um, which kind of justifies this idea of that later adolescent period. And then there's lots of activities that have kind of their own age limits, like joining the services or getting married um, mm. when children can make decisions without their parents we'll probably look up into those a lot more in adolescence um, in that podcast but one yeah. thing just to highlight is about the age of criminal responsibility so in England Wales and Northern Ireland it's 10 years which means that you're considered capable of committing a crime um, but obviously oh, you're, you're capable of knowing of doing it with intent that's the idea isn't it yes you can be you can so be held responsible yeah. for your actions yeah. yeah, and in Scotland, the age of criminal responsibility is currently eight, but there is a plan to raise it to 12. Wow, yeah, okay, I didn't know it was eight. That's really young, I think. Yeah, for... but there is a different system in Scotland, as I understand it, where mm. needs and deeds are regarded as the same. So so there's, there's, very, there's some very serious criminal cases, but generally crime is regarded as a indicator of need in the same way as... Um, being neglected might be right so you would okay. go through the same system yeah okay and I think there was an approach like that in England perhaps some time ago maybe in the 60s and 70s where um, young people who committed crimes were often taken into care yeah and this is this is linking into this general thing about how we view children um, mm. and generally I think we view them as as um, needing support and protection but sometimes yeah. we stop seeing children as children um, and one of the things I was looking at for this was how our ideas of children have developed so during the 1600s if you'll bear with me go back yeah, in time to the 1600s there was a shift in, in the philosophy of how we saw children um, and in, the English philosopher John Locke was particularly influential and he had this theory that the human mind is kind of a blank slate at birth and that you add data and, and rules. So there's a lot of nurture, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that means that parents need to support children to grow up with the correct notions, whatever they might be. And that meant that gradually there was an, an increased interest in educating and developing children um, and things like textbooks and poems and stories for children came about. And also mm -hmm. from then onwards, we started to think much more about children's education so it used to be that people some children were educated for particular functions but generally there wasn't education and that that role of education grew um, until really only in the beginning of the 20th century did you have universal education you so. learned your craft or your trade the way you could make money and survive from the immediate people around you. And they also had, even earlier, didn't they, they had the idea that you could be fostered away from home to somebody and you're often fostered away to learn a trade or apprentice to a trade. So, yes, we didn't have education in terms of reading and writing and book stuff, but we did already have a form of education which was much more around um, apprenticeships and learning life skills. 
when people were learning crafts, then um, they were, you know, they weren't being exploited in a way that they became exploited under industrialization when children were sent out to work and, and do dangerous kind of jobs mm -hmm. as well um, and long hours and be separated from family life and their communities. So there was there was a growth in an interest in reforming the way that children worked from about the 1830s and you know, all the, the Dickens novels and things helped with that. So by the late 19th century, people started to see children much more as in need of protection and, and of, of in need of having a childhood as well. Mm. Um, and then there was the First World War and a lot of children died. And following that, there was the first Convention on Children's Rights. And then again, the Second World War saw a lot of children exploited. And it was after that that UNICEF, which is the United Nations Children's Fund, was set up. And gradually um, there was more kind of discussion and, and kind of consolidation of children's rights. But the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child didn't wasn't written until 1989, which is really late. I was really surprised mm. by that. Um, and that is a really worthwhile document for social workers to look at, isn't it? It's, a, it's, been... it's essential for children's social workers to attend to, um, and certainly here because we are signatories um, and all UN member states except for the United States have ratified the convention. And I remember when I was still at school or was I at university anyway in the late 80s? It must have been after it was all signed up to and the UN didn't. I wrote a very stern letter to their president saying that I was incredibly unhappy you about wrote to the American president. I wrote to the American president because I was so angry that they didn't sign up. And of course, the convention doesn't mean that people follow the convention signing it no. and not signing it doesn't mean that you don't um, but it is such a valuable document isn't it and it, it includes this statement that all actions concerning children uh, sorry in all actions concerning children whether undertaken by public or private social welfare institutions courts of law administrative authorities or legislative bodies the best interests of the child should be a primary consideration and that really strikes me because it's a primary consideration Whereas in our legislation in England and you know, similar across the UK, the welfare of the child is the primary consideration. Yes. So, um, so yeah. It's in those two words, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is a statement of intention. For me, that's what's beautiful about the convention is it is a statement of intention. And it's the same in our legislation, as you say, the rights of the child are in ours, the primary consideration. So we must take the wishes and the feelings of the child into consideration. But actually, it is still a consideration, Jerry. There are many times when, as a children's social worker, we know that we are not doing what the child wishes or what the child hopes for, but we are doing what we believe, based on our professionalism, our expertise and our age, that the child will need. Um, and that can be really hard for children and young people, actually, because the truth is that our understanding that they need extra care and attention and that they need adults to nurture and guide them can also feel to children very heavy handed and very unfair and can make them feel like a second rate citizen. Um, and so that's a kind of, you know, an unintended consequence of their vulnerability. Um, 
And of course, as they grow more and more, they see that they see themselves as less and less vulnerable. Um, and it's that careful negotiation between the adult child about how much protection they need. And this is one of the things that I think has really changed, um, you know, that as we have developed a society which is more and more complex and hard for us to navigate and negotiate, we have limited the child's roaming space and the things that they can do and experience by themselves. So children are much more um, escorted now than they used to be, much more surveyed, much more um, monitored. So children used to be able to, in the 60s and 70s and certainly before, have have much wider free-ranging play, but now they're most likely to have after-school activities or play dates or things that are organised for much longer. Um, children don't walk or ride to school as much as they used to, and a lot of that reason is because of the complexity of the traffic that they would have to navigate to get back and forth to school. So we've really created... Um, a frame in our society today where children stay younger much longer. And you can see that in our adolescence as well. And you can see that in our extension right up to um, us offering care and protection for children up to 25 and children staying at home for much longer. So you, you find, you know, young adults living at home much longer. And all of this is about how we respond to childhood, how we respond to vulnerability, how we respond to um, the need to educate our children in the complexity of the world. Well, that's a really important point, though, isn't it? Because I was, I was going to, I was thinking that a place to start for social workers is to understand, again, as we talked about in infancy, understand child development. But mm. we also have to understand that it's development in the context of. A particular society or way of life and the more complex yeah. the society and way of life the the more well we've got to think about the fit haven't we between yeah. how developed children are and what it yeah. is that they're trying to navigate mm. uh, so thinking and what they about, lose and what they gain yeah we have to really think about what we're educating our children to be able to do because yeah, we and, want um, social workers are aiming to support children to develop in the ways they need to to thrive so as society's mm. demands change, the things that children need to develop change as well, don't they? Yeah, and there's a real argument about that with um, looked after children and thinking about the fact that if we appreciate that trauma, you know, if we think about trauma-informed practice and we appreciate that um, childhood adversity, such as abuse and neglect, really impact on every area of your life, including brain development, then we also need to appreciate that some of the stages of development, particularly educationally, that we're thinking and, and some of the things we think children should attain might not be attainable within the same time frames. So one of the there's some interesting work around that's suggesting and it's from the ACEs stuff that we often asked um, looked after children to do things that are too complex too early and that they can achieve, but it sometimes takes them longer. So we need to be able to slow down some of the educational demands on them and give them a longer period of time to be able to do the complex healing work alongside the complex educational work then you've got to take everybody's context into account and adjust it reasonably for that person. So you've got to be able to ask, what would most people be doing 
what is this child doing? Why is it different? And do we need to make the same or can we let it be different for for some time? Yeah. So it's the uh, it's how social workers adapt their response and work in a person centred way, isn't it? And thinking about the outcomes for a particular child in, in light of their experiences and context. Um, can we talk a little bit about ACE studies? I did I did read up a bit on this because there's so much that's discussed about it. So I just wanted to kind of get back to a bit of a baseline on it. So it comes from the United States looking at um, childhood experiences that might impact on children adversely. Mm. Um, and as I understand it, the 10 areas that they looked at were physical, emotional and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, and then issues within the household around mental illness violence, divorce, substance abuse, and um, being in prison, basically. So they're quite individual experiences mm. for kids rather than contextual ones. Um, and found that unsurprisingly, in a way, repeated adverse experiences in childhood are associated with difficulties through childhood and into adult life, um, mm. sort of in terms of mental and physical health and well-being. So associated with being the important word here because there's a lot of varieties in there between how particular children experience particular things and the impact on them so I think it's quite it's helpful um it's also doesn't stop us having to be curious does it mm. well I think the thing is that oh, despite what Locke our earlier theorist thought that children really aren't blank states for adults to write upon they're really a combination of their genetic makeup and that's already imprinted on them from conception and it gives them that early schema with which to interact with the world around them and their pre-birth experiences. You know, babies are already interacting with the world through their senses prior to birth um, and so domestic violence, for example, can have a really um, poor impact on both the mother and the fetus during pregnancy. Um, you know, from birth they can distinguish the smell and the sound of their biological parents and as they interact with the world around them they take in that information and they make sense of it seeking more and more in ways that are influenced by their personality which is their genetic makeup and their pre-birth experiences so if they've had a really great you know um, pre-birth experience and their genetic makeup is prone, prone towards optimism and lots of curiosity and outward exploring, then they're probably going to take the world on in the same way. So as experiences come to them, they'll use that to look around with. Um, a child who who might um, have a parent who is quieter and more thoughtful and that's the approach that they adapt, well, then they're going to have a different way of exploring the work with the world. And all of those things then tell you how they're going to understand trauma and distress and how they're going to respond to it. And so some children you'll see will respond to trauma and distress and fear by pushing out and roaring and, and fighting back, and other children will withdraw. Um, some children will be hopeless early on and all those different things. That's the child, and that's and I guess for me that's a really important thing is you're always thinking about what what is this child bringing to the table? What is it they're bringing in terms of their personality and their determination and the way they look at the world? And what are they bringing in terms of experience? And what does what's happening now mean to them? So what's the impact on them? 
And that's what you're always trying to understand. It's not enough that there's been a divorce or that there's been um, someone incarcerated or that there's been violence or substance abuse. It's what does that mean for that child if their parent is having that experience? And you won't know that, I guess, unless you know who this child is. That's right, and that's why it's so important to get to just sit with children, really, and to try to try to see the world through their eyes. It's that, that idea of assessment, isn't it, to sit alongside. You want to – you don't want to give the children so many jobs to do when you see them that they're so busy that you can never get to just know them. You want to do that watch, wait, and wonder where you actually set up a safe place for them to play and explore, and this is children of all ages – and then you watch them and you wonder why they're doing certain things. And so you have to be curious and you might say, oh, you know, that's a nice colour or why did you pick that? Or, you know, and you're just kind of asking big open questions just to let them guide you around their world and their way of thinking. And that's why um, work like story stems and things like that where you're getting them to help you tell stories um, is a particularly useful way because it tells you a little bit about how they interpret the world um, if you go in there asking them lots of questions about difficult events, it's quite likely that you're not going to get a true sense of who they are. You're just going to get a sense of an issue, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it leads me to think of two things. One is the this wonderful phrase that came into the Social Work Global Conference last year, which was the idea about wasting time with people. Yes, and then it also I met somebody last week who was a social worker and in their team they'd arranged for one of the social workers to go and get their nails done with a girl every two weeks because mm. that was the way that they could spend time with her. Yeah, and uh, talk with her. <laughs> yeah, so taking your cue from what they're interested in. So start well with what they're interested in. Yeah. yeah. Someone really smart once said to me, there are no small conversations with children. Everything they tell you is important to them. Everything they tell you is big. So if you listen to everything, then when there's something you really need to know, they'll tell you. And the the other thing that I was thinking about was, because you're talking about connections with children, but another thing obviously to consider is who else is connected, isn't that? So there isn't yep. any sense really in which work with children is just social work. No. Well, children don't exist by themselves as an entity. You can have an adult sometimes that exists by themselves as, a, as an entity. I think that's very sad, you know, a disconnected adult. But it's not possible to have a child that's completely disconnected because children are in adult care. So whether that care is good, bad or indifferent, whether the relationship is strong, weak or dangerous, they are enmeshed in relationships and care. Yeah. And so you have to attend to all of the people who are around them because all of those people have a role to play um, and you're really wanting to heighten the connectivity and the, and, and the joyfulness that child-adult interactions have. So you want to really lift the enjoyment in those interactions and you want to decrease the stress in them. And so you're always thinking of, of the, the child's context because they don't, they don't exist by themselves. The other thing is that children are connected into other services, aren't they? So they're not just connected Absolutely. to children's services, but 
education, um, health, particularly. Yes, um, and the police um, sometimes they um, might be connected to other specialist services. So if they're a young carer, um, they'll have support services there. Um, if their parent um, is in the justice system, there might be some contact there. So there's a whole range of different services that are out there to help um, care and connect with um, children. And as a social worker, you always have to be looking at your professional network and your and your family network, your social network. And an EcoMap is a really, really helpful thing to use. And you can use the EcoMap both in terms of who's in the child's world socially and who's in the child's world professionally. So you could have professionals as one colour and so, and socially as another colour. And you always worry about um, children whose world is mostly professional. It's a, it's a real problem, um, particularly for looked after children. If they're surrounded by professionals, we know that given the best will in the world, professionals move on. And so if you're thinking about us needing to form healthy relationships where we can develop a sense of the world where we can predict that people are going to be there for us, that we can trust them, that we've got someone who knows us and can tell our story, our lifelong, all those really important things. If a child is embedded in a professional network too heavily, then there's not a lot of space for them to make a personal network, which is what they need to make. Um, so as a, as a social worker, you're always looking to maximise those lifelong connections and you're always thinking, who will be at this child's wedding? Who will hold this child's baby? Who will tell this child's stories of their childhood when they need to hear them? Who will tell this child's child about them? And so you're really attending the whole time to the emerging adult. What can I gift this child? What can I do for this child that will allow them to go into their adult life confident, successful, and replete with relationship, as well as the abilities, the educational and other abilities, the developmental abilities to get on in the world. And that's a wonderful role, isn't it, to be part of? You made me think of kind of there being sort of a, a treasure box for children and that you put all these, help them collect all these gifts and put them all in and have them for the rest of their life. Um, and it's, it's great to be a part of something so lasting. You've talked that's about legacy stuff, before. Isn't it? Yeah, and that's the real reason, Jerry, that we venerate childhood in the way that we do is because we do understand and there's there's so much research that backs up that backs up our understanding that in the child is the man or the woman. So your childhood experiences stay with you your life long. They're the foundation upon which you build your adult life. Yet you're a child for 18 short years. You're an adult for 80 years. So those small foundations, those small beginnings are what you live your life on. And of course, you develop and change and grow um, for better or for worse throughout your life. But that foundation is created in those childhood years. 
and making it um, a gift box foundation, which is not the same as lavishing them with everything they want. It's about, you know, helping children have a, develop a sense of moral um, certainty, help them develop a sense of compassion, helping them develop curiosity, helping them feel able, helping them, you know, feel industrious and not inferior, helping them grow up free of guilt and shame and those things, being able to manage all of those things and navigate life. So it's quite a tough thing children have to manage to do, actually. But social work can contribute to helping that happen, and I think that's an, I think that's an amazing job. I personally think it's the best job in the world. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, which is about the role of our profession in um, addressing the context. And the, the reason I want to mention this is because about 10 days ago, so probably by the time this, this podcast comes up, it will be a few weeks back, the Social Mobility Commission brought out their State of the Nation 2018 to 2019, mm. which is a really important report and quite sad reading, actually, that social mobility in the UK, well, it looks particularly at England. Um, with a, with some commentary on the other nations of the UK. But in England, it is worsening. Um, mm. And there's this really telling problem that those from better off backgrounds yeah. um, are almost 80% more likely to land a top job than their working class peers, which yeah. is the sticky ceiling. So 34% mm -hmm. of people from working class backgrounds work in professional occupations compared to 60% of those from professional backgrounds. And then poorer backgrounds also are twice as likely to end up in working class occupations than those from professional backgrounds. And that's the sticky floor, basically. So around 35% of people from working class backgrounds remain in that occupational group. Um, but only 16% of those from professional backgrounds end up in working class jobs. So there's, there's not this precious little mobility. This is, so for me, it's not about changing people's ability to get white collar jobs for the for one of that word it's about uh, seeing the value in people's contributions across the board at the moment for me the most valuable people in the world are the guys that are stripping my house out and re-bricking it and plumbing it and doing all the electricity so that I can have a safe house to live in that's a really valuable job. Yes, I suppose, I think that's right. I think the, the problem is the there is stigma and there is judgment and there is discrimination across classes mm. in England and elsewhere in the world as well. So that's mm. a problem. And the other problem is that we we know that this is not about what people want to make of their lives. It's about the chances they have. And yeah. there's a limit on choice and opportunity yeah. and a real dis, you know, difference in the choices and opportunities people have. So you made me think of it because you're talking about that gift that adults can give children of self-efficacy and belief in themselves and the idea that they can do things and the chance to think and dream about what they might want to do. Mm. And it's just that that's hampered, isn't it? Um, I agree. I just, I just think that if you want to dream about caring for elderly people because actually you think that would be a fantastic job, you should know that you can do that and that you're not going to be forced 
into working poverty. But there's something about children being able to have the widest choice possible and that that choice shouldn't be based on status. It should be based on what they feel is valuable. Yes, and if you're thinking about the emerging adult, which I think is a really helpful term, it would be good for the child to know that their emerging adult was going to be valued. Yes. So there's a whole changing world out there. And as a social worker, you're trying to help children, as you say, have self-efficacy and aspire. But sometimes you're not even sure what to help them aspire to. If we're, if we're spending time with children and learning about what's holding them back and what would help, and it's aggregating that and thinking about what that means for how we might need to adjust as a society as well Mm -hmm. Um, but that is taking us a bit off topic from the direct (laughs) social work with children (laughs) Um, (laughs) although you know um, it's answering that big question how can I help children break out of the cycles that they find themselves in so if you think about so children who are looked after we have a different sense of agency with but for children we're working with who we classify as children in need so that's children who stay with their parents or their carers but whose parents or carers need extra support to be able to successfully um, help their children thrive. For that group of children and adults, it can be really, really tricky to enable them to feel a sense of agency and to break out of the the traps that they find they find themselves in and the cycles and the patterns that they find themselves in and so social workers do need to think really largely about this as well as in that really small what can I do for this family at this time and- hey, we're gonna try and pull this together with some implications um, <laughs> so we've talked about how society view ch- views children yeah. like philosophically and I think it is worth us having a sense of that in our own country and culture um, we have to think about how children develop, and what affects just, them, I, what impacts on them. Yeah. Could I jump into the how children developed? Is that okay? Just yeah, absolutely. Minute? Just because I've realised that I should have, I should have said the important thing for us to understand about child development is that children are programmed to grow. They're all about growth, and so if they're not growing in a helpful, healthy, sound way, they're still growing. It just means that their growth is being distorted or or pushed in a, in or stunted in a way. Does that make sense? So they're like, you know, if you think about a child as a plant, if a plant is fighting for sun, it just loses its shape a bit, doesn't it? It, it kind of, you know, goes out sideways or it, you know, it doesn't have as many leaves on one side or those types of things. So it's the same for a child. A child is still growing. They're not frozen in amber while they're waiting for social workers to get it right for them. Yeah. That's a really helpful analogy, isn't it, with the plants? Yes, every month, every six months, every year, they are a different child to what they were a year ago. And we need to constantly know that. It's one of the, you know, it's a time of rapid change. Um, And so we need to be constantly revisiting their development, constantly asking ourselves where are they up to? What have they gained and what have they lost? And how can we make up or compensate 
or help them cope with the things that they lost. And as they are growing or failing to get to their milestones, their peers are galloping away from them. And so the gap does widen. Um, so as a social worker, you're all their time constraints, the child's time um, in terms of development is absolutely critical. We have to be able to always hold what the, what are the jobs this child needs to do right now, who is helping them do them, who is hindering them from doing them, and how can we bring change to that situation. So it's a, it's a child's time frame is really urgent. Um, in these in these years yeah I think those are really good questions aren't they to be asking and as you said in the you said earlier the 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 crucial thing about knowing who this child is what their um, what their experiences have been so far and what impact those things are having on them um, as well as who's around them and working Mm. with others around them so I think we could probably sum sum this up just in one one reflective question which is how does my social work contribute to a good childhood 